Hi, this is John Stonge. In just a moment, you're going to be able to hear the training that we just concluded for the Healthy Discipleship Community. Our training topic tonight asked the question, what is the key to understanding the Scriptures? So that's what we're going to be discussing in this evening's training session, and we just finished recording it, so the audio of that will be available for you in just a moment. But if you're not part of the Healthy Discipleship Community and you'd be interested in joining us for one of these live calls, I'd invite you to stop by our website, which is healthydiscipleshipcommunity.com, and you could learn more about membership in the Healthy Discipleship Community and what that entails. So without further ado, here's tonight's training, What is the Key to Understanding the Scriptures? Well, we want to welcome you to tonight's training of the Healthy Discipleship Community. Tonight we're talking about what I consider a very interesting spiritual subject, and also I'll say that it's a subject that uh, I, I don't hear referenced as often as I would like to see it referenced, but I'm titling our, our training time tonight, The Key to Understanding the Scriptures. In fact, we're asking it as a question, what is the key to understanding the Scriptures? And so I'm going to show you just a few quick examples that will illustrate the overall point that I'm trying to make with tonight's teaching, but there are many, many more examples that truly we could look into if we had enough time. Uh, but tonight, again, we're talking about what is the key to understanding the Scripture. So let me share just a couple thing, a couple quick things just in a preliminary way before we dig into this. First off, let me say this. Many people express a desire to understand the Bible, but struggle to wrap their minds around the bigger picture of what's being communicated in it. And we even talked about this in a training session just a few weeks ago when we were talking about uh, committing the Bible to memory, understanding the content of the Bible. You know, plenty of people look at the Scriptures and they say, oh yeah, I have a, a, a definite desire to understand what the Scriptures are communicating, but they struggle to wrap their minds around the bigger picture. And there really is a bigger picture that the Lord's communicating when we get into what uh, Scripture is referencing. So we're going to talk about that bigger picture here as we spend our time together this evening. Um, but in some context, I've actually witnessed people treating Scripture the wrong way. And what I mean by that is this. I see frequently Scripture being treated like it's merely a historical collection of rules and heroes and practical life lessons. But the Bible is much more than that. Now, certainly when you go through the Scriptures— you'll see certain things that are commands that the Lord has given us. So we could say, all right, well, there is a collection of rules there. Absolutely, there's a collection of rules. And we would say, you know, when we get to a chapter like Hebrews chapter 11, there are plenty of people that we would say are heroes of the faith. And so I recognize that, that there are people that we look up to and respect. And when we look at the wisdom literature of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the book of Psalms and, and uh, the book of Job, we see practical life lessons. We see that in the, the New Testament letter that James penned. Um, we, you know, we see some very practical life lessons. So to some degree, I can understand why people would look at the Bible and say it's a collection of rules, a collection of, uh, of stories about heroes, uh, lists of practical life lessons. I understand where people are coming from when they say that, but I, again, want to reiterate that that's not the essence of what the Bible's trying to get at. The Bible's much 
more than that. And I will just admit to you this evening that it took me a while to really get my mind wrapped around this. Even as an adult, I did not enter my adult walk with, with Christ with this fully understood in my mind. I only partially understood it. But when the Lord made it clear to me through teaching, through reading, through direct mentorship from those who were further along in life and ministry, it was like a light bulb went on in my mind. And uh, he enabled me to understand the Bible with much more clarity once I understood this key. So I want to share this with you tonight in case this is something that you haven't heard before, uh, or in case this is something that maybe you have heard before, but you just haven't thought about it much in a long time. Throughout the pages of Scripture, and this is here as we're going to be getting into the key. What's the key to understanding the Scriptures? Well, throughout the pages of Scripture, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the message of redemption through Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. Now, I'll mention something to you real quick, even before I get into some of the details that I'm going to focus on tonight. I remember when I was about 15 years old, I was starting to get pretty serious about my faith in Christ, and my pastor gave me a book. And the book that he gave me was called Christ in the Psalms. And I remember looking at the title of that book, and I thought, Christ in the Psalms. I was like, why, does, why is he giving me a book called Christ in the Psalms? The New Testament references Jesus. I was like, I, and I remember thinking to myself, Jesus isn't mentioned in the book of Psalms, is he? I mean, that's not what the book of Psalms is about. Yeah, that, that's, I, I, was, I was a bit confused, and, and I didn't understand that both the Old and the New Testament are both proclaiming the message of redemption through Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to show a couple quick examples of that tonight. Like I said, this is a very deep subject that we could spend a lot more time than what we'll spend together tonight looking at. We could look at it with much more depth uh, if we had more time, but since we don't, I'll just give us an overview of this. We want to see a, a little bit about the message of redemption being proclaimed all throughout the Scriptures. The Bible is pointing us to Jesus. In fact, I would suggest that the key to understanding the Scriptures is to ask yourself this question, how is this passage trying to point me to Jesus? So whatever you're looking at in Scripture, now I did reference this a little bit briefly a few weeks ago when we were talking about studying Scripture together, but I want to be a bit more specific about it tonight and give you some more examples of that. I think it's important if we're trying to understand what Scripture is communicating, we need to ask the question, how is this passage trying to point me to Jesus? Now, it's very obvious when you're in the New Testament you go through the Gospels, the Gospels giving us the historical accounts of what Jesus did and taught during the course of his earthly ministry. Then you go through the book of Acts, when you see the early church proclaiming the Gospel all over the place, and, and uh, as the Gospel was spreading, and thousands and thousands of new people were coming to faith in Christ. And then you go throughout Paul's letters, and then the general letters, and then the, the book of Revelation, and, and you see all sorts of things that are very explicitly and clearly pointing us to Jesus. But I think when we look at the Old Testament, sometimes we forget that the Old Testament is trying to do that as well. And in the Old Testament, you see historical examples that prepare us for the coming Messiah. 
and you see some of these people that we refer to as heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, who really are giving us a glimpse of things that we will see ultimately displayed and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the key to understanding whatever passage we're in in Scripture is to ultimately be asking, how is this passage trying to point me to Jesus? That's how we understand the big narrative that Scripture is trying to get at, the message of redemption that's communicated all throughout Scripture. So I want to start us off this evening in Luke chapter 4. And I'm going to share several scriptures with us tonight, but Luke chapter 4 is where I'm going to begin. And I'll leave the reference here on our screen, but I'm going to read it to us. And I'm going to pick up at verse 16, and I'll read down to verse 30, and then I'm going to make a few comments about this. But this is what it says in Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 16. It says, And he came to Nazareth, so this is speaking of Jesus, and this is, by the way, at the start of his earthly ministry. It says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son. Now, I'm going to pause there for just a moment and recap what we just read. I just finished. I'm going to pick up in a second at verse 23, but let me say this. This scripture tells us that Jesus went into the synagogue, and he's in the town of Nazareth, and he was given by, I'm assuming, the synagogue leader, the synagogue ruler, the scroll to Isaiah, and Jesus begins reading from the book of Isaiah in that moment. Now, the portion of Scripture that he's reading from is from Isaiah chapter 61. So he takes this scroll, it's brought before him, he starts reading that, and he communicates very clearly. One of the things that, that people would comment about Jesus during that particular time was that when he spoke, he spoke with authority. And people marveled at how he spoke and what he shared, but we're told that after he reads that portion of Scripture from the book of Isaiah, he then takes the scroll, and he rolls it up, and he gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. But then the Scripture says that the eyes of the people in the synagogue were all fixed on Jesus in that moment. They stayed fixed on him. And I guess they began muttering among themselves, you know, you know, this is fascinating. I mean, the, the reading that he's doing, the things that he's communicating, isn't this Joseph's son? But Jesus makes a comment in that context, and he says to them something very interesting. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what he was saying to them was that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 61, this portion of scripture that Isaiah had communicated. And I don't imagine 
that in that moment, they fully realized that that's what Jesus was communicating, but he was about to say some additional things that really got the crowd riled up, and they go from thinking that he's wonderful to thinking that he needs to be executed. So let me pick up at verse 23, and there it says this, and he said to them, so they're still marveling and saying kind things of him, but then he goes on, and in verse 23 says, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. And by the way, this is what was said to him when he was on the cross. They'd say he healed others. Why, why doesn't he heal himself? So that, that eventually was very much fulfilled. But then he says this, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He's still saying that, that there will be a day when people will say that to him. And then verse 24, he says, and he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel, or there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, that's a fascinating portion of Scripture, and I imagine that sometimes when we would look at a portion of Scripture like that, we would think, why did Jesus, giving this example from Elijah's life, and then another example from Elisha's life, make this crowd so angry? And a big part of what made them so angry was that Jesus was illustrating the fact that when a prophet was sent to them, that the people of Israel had the bad habit of rejecting the prophet. Sometimes they would respect the prophet after the prophet was dead, but during that prophet's lifetime, that prophet was typically rejected because prophets tell you the type of things you don't want to hear. And that was certainly the case with the Old Testament prophets. By the way, it was certainly the case with Isaiah, whom Jesus had just read a portion of the scripture that Isaiah had penned down. Isaiah was sawn in half at the end of his life, so he was executed. And Jesus says here, that there were plenty of widows in Israel, but Elijah was sent to a widow who was a Gentile. And so you have this group of people saying, wait a second, what, what's going on? What, what's Jesus saying here? And then Jesus gives the example of Elisha, and he says in that particular example, Elisha healed a leper, but the leper that he healed was a Syrian, not an Israelite. And so these people are, are saying, wait, what's going on? And what Jesus was trying to say, he's trying to give them examples of how prophets had come to the people of Israel, but they were rejected by the people of Israel. And here you have examples of Gentiles accepting the prophets and being blessed through the ministry of those prophets. And Jesus was ultimately getting at the fact that these are scriptures that illustrate an aspect of his ministry. The fact that he came to the people of Israel, and just like the prophets of old, he would be rejected by his own people, and he would ultimately go and offer himself to the Gentiles. So it's interesting, when we look at those stories about Elijah and Elisha 
and the other prophets, it's very easy for us to miss the big picture when we're looking at that, because we don't always ask the question, how is this pointing me to Jesus? And what those scriptures were doing, and Jesus illustrates this here in Luke chapter 4, those Old Testament scriptures and those Old Testament examples were showing us a glimpse of something Jesus would one day do, that he would offer himself to the Israelites, be rejected by them, but then be accepted by the Gentiles. And this infuriates this crowd that's in the synagogue here. But he's showing them a picture of how the Old Testament scriptures find their fulfillment in him. Now, let me read to us another portion of scripture. And that's from Luke chapter 24. So opposite ends of the book of Luke, Luke here, where you know, we started here in chapter 4, and we're jumping right ahead till after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, and jumping to Luke 24. But in Luke 24, you have Christ resurrected, and he's walking with a, a, a group of people. He's walking with a couple individuals on the road to Emmaus. And, um, and something happens there. And he explains to them the key that we're talking about tonight, that the key to understanding the Scriptures is ultimately to say, how is this pointing me to Jesus? So let me read for us from Luke chapter 24. Again, this is after Jesus has already now been crucified, and now he's risen from death and he's appearing to people in his resurrected body. And verse 13 of Luke 24 says this, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, so they don't immediately realize that this is Jesus right there with them. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to, and he said to them, what things? And it's interesting that Jesus says that, what things? He knows what's happened, but he's saying this to them so that they will take the opportunity to walk through the details, that they will verbalize the things that they're speaking of. And the scripture says, and they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So let me pause there. That's verse 25 of Luke 24. Here you have Jesus saying to this, this uh, you know, these people that he's walking with on the road to Emmaus, he's saying, how foolish, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's indicating that the things that the prophets have spoken were things that were pointing to him. And in verse 26, he goes on to explain this. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then I love what it says in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So notice that. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. 
So think about that. We refer to the Old Testament as the Old Testament. Well, before the New Testament was written, they didn't call it the Old Testament because there wasn't a New Testament yet. They just referred to it as the Law and the Prophets, or the books of Moses and the Prophets. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's saying, I'm going to take you through the whole Old Testament. And it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So notice those all statements. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What he was doing was he was helping this, uh, these these individuals during those early days of the, uh, as the church was about to be founded. It was helping them to understand that the scriptures were pointing to him, that when you're in the books of Moses, it's pointing to Jesus, that when you're in the, the books of prophecy, it's pointing to Jesus, but they were missing that. So here's an interesting question that can kind of test this a little bit, and it's just one of many examples. But I remember years ago being asked a question related to an Old Testament portion of Scripture that, I, that is commonly familiar, and someone said to me, all right, how does that portion of Scripture point to Jesus? And before I had this all clear in my mind, I really didn't have a good answer to give to them. And so I remember years ago just hearing that question and thinking to myself, I don't know how it points to Jesus. And so I'm going to give us an example of this tonight that Jesus very clearly um, references for us, uh, you know, just in his own teaching, and he gives us the answer very directly. But let me, let me pick a very uh, common example that illustrates this, that all Scripture is pointing to Jesus. And that's from the book of Jonah, chapter 1. Now, many people are familiar with the story of Jonah. It's kind of interesting when you go into a lot of children's uh, nurseries and rooms. Their rooms are decorated with with Jonah, and church nurseries are decorated with Jonah. But it's kind of a fascinating story when you look at that book of prophecy in the Old Testament, where you have Jonah being told to go to a Gentile city, the city of Nineveh, and to proclaim the message of the Lord to them and encourage them to repent of their unbelief and turn over to the Lord. And Jonah didn't want to go to them. And so Jonah resisted preaching to them, and as a result, went on to a ship, and then eventually is cast off the ship and is swallowed by a great fish. And in Jonah chapter 117, well, in, and then, by the way, the fish then takes him to Nineveh, spits him up on the land, and Jonah reluctantly preaches to the people of Nineveh. But even the book of Jonah, at the end, he's complaining at the end. So Jonah seems a bit content. Uh, you know, uh, crabby, cantankerous to me. Uh, when I look at that book, he didn't really want to do that. But you would say, all right, how does the story of Jonah point us to Jesus? Well, again, you have a prophet going to Gentiles and Gentiles repenting and believing. So that would be one example. But you see another interesting example right in the first chapter of the book of Jonah in verse 17, where it says this, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights before he went and preached to the Gentiles, before the message went and was preached to the Gentiles of Nineveh. 
And you would look at that, and for many years, I, I imagine people just kind of looked at that and thought to themselves, okay, it's just a, a statement of fact, something interesting and unique that took place, but I don't know that they would think that it had any messianic significance. And then when we get to Christ's ministry, Jesus tells us that that was actually a sign or a foretaste or a picture of a greater reality. In fact, he explains it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 40 and 41, where he says this, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So what Jesus is indicating is that the events that took place during Jonah's time and the things that happened to Jonah were actually a picture ahead of time of what the Messiah would ultimately do, what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would ultimately do in his, you know, it, as he was crucified and then buried. And Jesus reference, references this idea of being three days and three nights. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth is the way he phrases it in verse 40 of Matthew chapter 12. And he says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So again, even when we're reading through the book of Jonah, it's wise for us to ask the question, how is this attempting to point my heart to Jesus Christ. These are the type of things that Jesus was explaining on that road to Emmaus. It's also the type of things that if you really want a case study in all of these things, this whole concept, how to read the Bible through a Christ-like lens, I'd encourage you to take some time to read uh, the book of Hebrews, because it really synthesizes the teaching of the Old Testament, showing us how that scripture has been pointing us to Christ the entire time. But let me give you another example that I think is extremely interesting. And in Psalm uh, chapter 22, Psalm 22, which is in the poetic or wisdom section of the Old Testament, we see a very, very clear description of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. So I'm going to read a portion of that for us. I'll read uh, sections from verse 1 up to verse 18. But as I read this psalm that was written hundreds of years before Christ came to this earth and was crucified, I want you to notice certain things in this psalm that are very clearly making reference to Jesus Christ and very clearly making reference to his crucifixion. Um, so in Psalm 22, starting with verse 1, the Scripture says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? By the way, does that phrase sound familiar? Does it bring our minds right back to the words Christ spoke on the cross? But then verse 2 goes on to say this, O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. So consider how the people despised Christ. 
toward the end of his earthly ministry and had him crucified, and they mocked him. And verse 7 of Psalm 22 says this, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And by the way, this is the, the type of conversation Jesus was referencing in Luke chapter 4 when he says there's going to be a day when you're going to say, physician, heal yourself. You know, you're able to heal others. Why don't you heal yourself? And uh, verse 9 says this of, of Psalm 22, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. And then the scripture goes on to say this, as we continue reading in Psalm 22. And uh, when you look at, um, you know, the, the last part of that verse says, and there is none to help. But then verse 12 says, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And how about this? It says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. So consider what happened to Christ when he was on the cross. At the end of his crucifixion, after he had experienced death, you have the soldier taking a spear and piercing through his ribs, up through his lungs, up into his heart. And I'm sure we remember what came out of his body at that point. Scripture tells us that it was like water was pouring out. And here in Psalm 22, prophetically, it says, I'm poured out like water. It also says, my heart is like wax. By the way, when somebody, this is graphic, so I'll warn you ahead of time, but when someone's crucified, they primarily die from suffocation. As they're crucified, the pericardium, this sac that's around their heart, fills with fluid like a waxy fluid, and their lungs fill with fluid. And so, you know, this is what Jesus endured for us on the cross. And when that soldier thrust that spear into his side, all that fluid that suffocated Christ on the cross, it comes, it comes pouring out of his body, just like was prophesied in Psalm 22. And how about this? In verse 15 of Psalm 22, it says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Remember when Christ was on the cross and he said that he thirsted and they take that hyssop branch with the sponge on it. And they they uh, bring that up to his mouth. Very much like what's being spoken of here in Psalm 22. But how about this? this is, these are the last verses I'll read from the Psalm. But it says in verse 16, it says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet. Very fascinating, as it's prophetically telling us about his crucifixion. And it says, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. And then verse 18, where I'll end for right now, says this, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now again, Many people, I'm sure, for decades and generations, and we could even say centuries, read Psalm 22 and thought, wow, that's a, a really strong illustration of the pain of suffering. But the real question is, how is this scripture pointing my heart to Jesus? And when you look at Psalm 22, what it's trying to do is illustrate all that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would endure on our behalf on the cross. So again, whether we're in 
the Old Testament law books or history or poetry or prophecy, it's all pointing us to Jesus, whether we're in the New Testament Gospels or Paul's letters or the general letters or the book of Revelation. It's all trying to point our hearts toward Jesus. So the key to understanding the Scriptures ultimately really is asking ourselves the question, how is the Lord trying to use this Scripture to point me to Him? How does this Scripture point me to Jesus? What is it trying to tell me about Jesus? And when we understand that, we come to a point where we have a much deeper understanding of who Christ is and what he's done for us, and ultimately the greater narrative, the narrative of redemption that's woven all throughout Scripture so that we don't compartmentalize Scripture, forgetting that it ultimately is as a whole pointing us to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to switch us over here to gallery view, and I have a few questions for discussion, and I'd love to uh, hear some of your thoughts and and uh, some of your insights as we kind of wrestle with this topic. So feel free to to jump in here with uh, some thoughts and, and uh, questions that you guys have of your own. But my first starter question for us during our discussion time is this. Why do you suppose the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of Scripture to point our hearts toward Jesus? Why do you suppose the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of Scripture to point our hearts toward Jesus? Do you have an initial thought on that question? Who wants to be brave and go first? All right, go for it. Well, because he is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. Perfect answer. Yeah. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ. That's from John chapter 14. It's interesting, um, Pastor Paul, you'll appreciate this. Uh, this morning, uh, sadly, one of the members of our, our church family, uh, her father, had to be taken off life support. And uh, right now there's very limited hospital visitation that's allowed and all that. So I wasn't able to be there with them. So she asked me if I could recommend some scriptures to read to her father in his waning moments. And that was one of the scriptures that I recommended to her, the one that you just quoted from John 14. That was one of the scriptures that I I suggested that she read to her father in that time. Uh, It's a very powerful scripture. And, and that's what Scripture is ultimately trying to help us recognize, that Christ is the way. There's no plan B. <laughs> There's no other option. The way to the Father is through the Son. The way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. The way to redemption is through Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. All right, so here, here's my next question. Are you convinced that the redemption of humanity is a priority to God? Why or why not? Are you convinced that the redemption of humanity is a priority to God? Why or why not? Would someone care to take a a stab at that one? Are you convinced that the redemption of humanity is a priority to God? First of all, even just by, by your heads, uh, let me let me see where we're at. Are are you convinced that that's a priority of God? All right. So I'm seeing affirmation. Um, 
so why? Why are you convinced that that matters to God? Why are you, what convinces you? Go ahead, Desha. Yeah. I, I don't have the exact, I don't even know if I can say this the right way, but there's something it, somewhere in, um, I don't know what scripture it is. I don't know if it's in Revelation, but doesn't it say something that everybody has to know about him before he comes back? So you're, that means I, I believe what you're referencing is in Matthew chapter 24, where it oh, talks okay. about the, the gospel being preached to the whole world. Yeah. Right. And that I, I, I'm pretty sure that that's what's in what you're referencing. Okay. Um, and so to some respect, you know, we could kind of, you know, people debate what that means, right? You know, okay. like, is the gospel available to the whole world now? Or are there unreached people groups still, you know, we, these are things that we debate and discuss and, and things like that. So that's a good question. Right. Um, but I think you're asking that in relation to the priority of God. Right? Yes, as the far as everybody that, so that's one of the knowing things about him and having that choice to, to be with him. <laughs> yeah, the fact that he would even say that this is something that is part of his sovereign plan for humanity, right? That part of his sovereign plan for humanity is that the message of the gospel, the message of Christ be preached all throughout the world. Okay, so that's one of the things that convinces Desha. Uh, any, anyone else have, a, have something that convinces you? Andrea, go ahead. I was just going to say, the fact that he references and points us to Jesus all throughout the scriptures is evidence that it's clearly important because, you know, any, you know, even if you just want to look at, not calling the Bible just literature, but even if you just want to look at a piece of literature, an author will re- revisit a theme or revisit an idea when they want the, the readers to, to, to know it or pay attention to it or to draw importance, you know, that attention. And so, you know, the fact that, that God has woven throughout all of the human writers of the scriptures all the way through that mass amount of time in which the 66 books were composed and then you know put together like the fact that it keeps like that he keeps referencing jesus indicates that that plan of redemption for humanity is obviously the main point yeah yeah you see that over and over again i and uh to your point um kind of backing you up uh even when you look at the things that are referenced in Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve rebel against God, and you have this discussion of one who's going to come as the seed of the woman and is ultimately going to crush the serpent's head. He's going to you know, crush his head, but yet be stricken in that process. You know, these, these pictures of what Christ is going to do. And even when you look at the fact that that right after Adam and Eve rebel, they are there's uh, animal skins that they're given. So animals are slain, blood is shed, so that their their shame could be covered, their nakedness could be covered because of the shed blood of these animals. Theologians say even there you have a picture of the ultimate sacrifice that Christ was going to to make on our behalf, in that blood would be shed so that our sin and our shame could be covered. And so you have these innocent animals, their, their blood being shed to cover the sin of, of Adam and Eve or the shame of Adam and Eve. Again, a foretaste right there at the beginning, right there at the very beginning of Scripture, pointing our hearts to Christ, if we're asking the right question there. How is this pointing me to Jesus? You know, it's not just about an animal being executed there. There's a bigger 
point. So yeah, I agree with you. All right, here's another another question related to all of this. What's the benefit of reading scripture through a Christ-centered lens? Because effectively, that's what we're talking about tonight, right? We're talking about the benefit of reading Scripture through a Christ-centered lens. And to explain what I mean by this question is, I'm saying there are two ways to read Scripture that are both well-intentioned, but I think one way is more profitable than the other. So one way to read Scripture is we compartmentalize it and we forget about how it interconnects. And we just say, okay, we've got the books of law in the Old Testament, and they have their purpose. But we, some people might say, but that's irrelevant for me because I don't live during that time. And then we have the books of history, and some people would say, okay, well, that's its own thing. And then we have the books of poetry and the books of prophecy. And some people almost dismiss the entire Old Testament because they say, all right, that's in a compartment, a compartment all of its own that doesn't have direct impact on me because I don't live under the old covenant. And so some people would say, okay, I don't need to really focus on that all that much because that's for people that lived in a different generation from what I'm living in. And the other perspective says, okay, let me see how all of scripture is connected and all of it is pointing me to Christ. And so, you know, what I'm asking, and and maybe I'm even answering the question, I guess, a little bit in how I, I just gave examples there. But in your opinion, what is the benefit of reading Scripture through a Christ-centered lens? Yeah, go ahead. I I have a a verse that was my life verse for many years in Proverbs 3, 5, that says, Trust in the Lord and rely not on your own understanding. And just from everything that I've heard, the discussions here tonight, uh, for me, it's the, it, it's the connection, the Christ-centered thing is that it's one spirit and it's one body and it's a, unitif- a unification that I feel I connect with God and his spirit when I'm reading the word that they were connected with God's spirit when they wrote those words, whether it's in the Old Testament, uh, no matter where it is in the Bible, you know, that uh, the writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what I believe. So that's kind of how I approach when I open that book, that before I start going with my human intellect or relying on my own understanding, I try to let the Spirit inspire me to what he's telling me with whatever scripture I happen to be reading or studying or, or preaching or and so for for me that's the key that the whole thing about everything is it's all about it's all about you Jesus like so and that's not just reading scripture I I, I try are you gonna to sing for us Don it seemed like you were about I, to break into song there so you know are you do that for I us? do that sometimes <laughs> you're allowed <laughs> but anyway that's what I that's what I feel is that like an answer to the the question of it being Christ centered. Mm-hmm. I think a whole life should be that. So yeah, it's, it's well, we call really ourselves Christians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. I think one of the um, things it does, uh, looking at the Old Testament, is it explains to us why Christ had to come into the world, mm-hmm. why it was necessary for God to send His only begotten Son, because there had to be a reason for it. And we find out when we read scripture that uh, God had made many covenants with uh, humankind 
and each covenant, if it would have been fulfilled, uh, we would have been okay. But every time, man fell short. So mm -hmm. finally, it was necessary for uh, God to send his only son uh, into the world so that uh, uh, you could be redeemed through him. But unless you, unless you have the Old Testament, you don't understand why uh, Christ came into the world. Yeah, we, the Old Testament illustrates the depth of our need. It shows our sinfulness and, like you said, our, our constant pattern of breaking covenants. <laughs> the Lord keeps the covenants and we break them. And it's interesting because, you know, speaking of covenants and speaking of reading Scripture through a Christ-centered lens, when you get into Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, it's a very easy verse to remember because it's 3131, there it speaks of the day when there's going to be a new covenant. Now, we have the privilege to live under that new covenant that's referenced there that Christ inaugurated, and a covenant was always inaugurated with the shedding of blood. And so when Christ's blood was shed for us on the cross, he ushered in the new covenant that we have the privilege to live under. And, uh, you know, it's fascinating when you, when, you know, you look at that perspective that you just shared there of how we just break covenant after covenant after covenant. And so none of them were sufficient. Uh, and so this new covenant had to be ushered in and it was ushered in through the blood of Christ. And we have the privilege to live under that as ultimately he's the one who keeps all righteousness for us. You know, it's, we, we couldn't do it. The old Testament illustrates we couldn't do it. So Christ came to do it for us. It's fascinating. Any other thoughts on that? All right, here's another question for us here. And uh, feel free to chime in with any ideas or thoughts that you guys have related to any of these things. Uh, but this is kind of a personal question. And, um, you know, we're talking about this idea of reading the Scriptures with a Christ-centered perspective or seeing the Scriptures through a Christ-centered lens. And I'd just be curious to hear from you guys, how has the Lord been speaking to you in recent days through his word? How has the Lord been speaking to you in recent days through his word? Is there something that he said to you? Is there something that he's, he's shared with you or revealed to you through his word that has had an impact on you? I know one for me. Uh, recently, I was reading through Psalm 112, and I keep coming back to Psalm 112 because it's just uh, in it. I see this this pattern for Christ-like living, and how the Lord wants us to reflect the heart of Christ, and how we treat our families, and how we interact with others. Uh, gives us a picture of the benefit that can come long term through that kind of interaction with others. And, and I just happened to be, I just felt like reading in the Psalms one day recently. And so I, I didn't really pick that Psalm with a whole lot of intentionality. I started actually reading the Psalms just prior to it. But then when I got to Psalm 112, I thought to myself, wow, I just, I want to hear this again. I want to read it again. And I kept reading it. And then the next day I thought, I'm going to read it again. And I'm going to read it again. And so the Lord spoke to me through that portion of Scripture. It really encouraged my heart. I'd just be curious to hear a testimony from anyone else. How's the Lord been speaking to you in recent days 
from his word. What do you think? Yeah, go ahead. I've been studying the Beatitudes and um, one of the things as you, it's funny because it also has, it talks a lot about, about how God wants us to live. But one of the things you see in it is just how eager God is to bless us. You know, like he's so eager to, to mm. give us good things and to uh, just make our lives so rich. So that was one thing that stood out to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he blesses us in ways we do not deserve. And, uh, and we're grateful for that. Yeah, and that's a good reminder from Scripture. Uh, today in our jurisdiction, we observed the Feast to the Visitation of the Blessed Virgin Mary when she went uh, to see her sister. And uh, uh, we always, it's the same reading all the time, but it, it always reminds me when uh, uh, Mary came to Elizabeth and all of a sudden uh, John jumps, the baby jumps in Elizabeth's yeah. womb, uh, reacting to the presence of our Lord and Savior. And, uh, you know, when it, it reminds me that whenever I have one of those Jesus experiences, uh, it, it just lifts you up. Yeah. It, it makes you, it makes you jump. That scripture and that account is fascinating, isn't it? To that, that the baby would leap in the womb at the presence of Christ. That's just fascinating. Cause you think how, how is this, this child isn't naturally conscious of another child nearby. I mean, that's a very supernatural description. There's a very supernatural uh, element to all that's taking place there, and it's just very edifying and encouraging to see. Both births were sort of supernatural. Right. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's just, it's, it, I, I just think that that's a very, um, uh, every time I've come across that scripture, I, I always, it, it kind of makes you chuckle a little bit to, you know, you, you kind of uh, picture, you know, his little uh, infant John the Baptist and his mother's tummy still is jumping and you could just see her face and see her reaction in that moment. Like, Oh, okay. You know, just the startled uh, expression she would have had in that moment. Cause I remember, you know, how fascinated I was, uh, you know, my wife and I, we started having kids to now and then you would see, especially toward the latter stages of pregnancy, when you'd see the baby, you could tell that the baby was moving, you know, you'd see something kind of move and, and you're like, wow, like you could actually see movement there, Put you know, put my hands on my wife's belly and I'd, I'd feel movement. And, and there were times that she said of our children, I think you said our, our second child was uh, the most active there and uh, right. Wasn't he? And his name's John. How about that for, for some irony in our conversation tonight? Uh, yeah, but he was jumping around all the time, and he's the one that came. Uh, his birth was the quickest, too. So, And he's, he's been, um, you know, full of energy ever since. <laughs> but, yeah, that's a great portion of Scripture. I agree. A- any other thoughts from anyone uh, about any of these things? Let's just open this up real quick. Any other insights from anyone on the call tonight uh, about anything we've discussed or looked at tonight? That, uh, that we could end our call with this evening. Any other insights or thoughts from you? Well, I'd yeah. like to share two. Um, one I was thinking of when you were speaking, by the way, the 22nd Psalm, it's a very important Psalm in our liturgy too. On Holy Thursday, uh, when we commemorate the, uh, uh, the uh, Last Supper and uh, for us as Catholics, the, the body and the blood of Christ being uh, given, um, that, that, we always conclude the liturgy that evening uh, 
because Jesus goes to the garden in Gethsemane and we strip the altars in the church. Everything is stripped down. And when, it, the, when the altars are stripped, we read the 22nd Psalm hmm. because of its absolute uh, uh, relationship to, to the passion. But the two things I wanted to share real quickly is uh, in Genesis, in the, uh, I think it's the fifth and the sixth chapter, uh, we hear the, uh, the, the uh, descendants from uh, um, Adam to Noah and then from Noah to Abraham. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting because not everybody is, but certain ones walk with God. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's an important image. Uh, Enoch walked with God, and he was taken by God. Uh, uh, when you there, there, there are others though. I mean, there, I think there's three or four that walked. Seth walked with God. Mm-hmm. Um, they found favor in God's eyes. But also that image, because when Jesus, uh, when when uh, uh, when Je- when when the uh, when Andrew asked, you know, where do you live? Uh, Jesus said, "Come and see." And as you mentioned, the uh, apostles, uh, uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they were walking with God. So that idea of walking with God is is, is an important image, and it comes up in the Old Testament. And finally, I was going to mention too in uh, in Genesis uh, with Abram at the time uh, is uh, when he uh, comes when he comes to uh, into to his land where. Uh, he will settle down. Uh, that he goes to the uh, the uh, uh, priest Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is very important because normally sacrifices at that time were always done by blood by animal sacrifice. But what Melchizedek did to uh, to honor uh, God and to uh, intercede for Abram was he offered bread and wine. Mm-hmm. Bread and wine. And that again, that's that's a direct correlation uh, to uh, Jesus. Yeah, and and uh, his it, Mel, it says um, what is it? Melchizedek, uh, king of Salem, so king of peace, right? So yeah. it's another reference to Christ. There's even some theologians that think that Melchizedek is an Old Testament appearance of Christ. Um, you know, people debate that, but you know, when you when you look at even in the um, Oh, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about the fact, you know, that you have Melchizedek without, uh, uh, like, beginning of days or end of life. You know, there's no record of his beginning of days or end of life, you know. And, and so you could see all these things and, and his priesthood uh, showing us an illustration ultimately of the, the high priesthood of Jesus Christ and how that relates to us as believers. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, it's one of the many, many examples that we have all throughout the Old Testament that are right there for us to see pointing us to Christ if we read the Old Testament with a Christ-centered lens, which, unfortunately, many people never learn to do, and as a result, I think they're missing out on big things, you know, good, like really big things that the Lord wants us to see and, and understand. Well, as always, I, I appreciate this time with everybody on, on Thursday evenings. Glad you guys are able to jump on the call. And All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for joining tonight, and I hope everybody has a wonderful week. It's probably warm where all of us are, just about, as I look at the geographic locations where everybody's at. Uh, but I hope you guys have a great night and, uh, and a warm one. <laughs>
and we'll see you next Thursday, Lord willing. Hey there, it's Nicole Eunice from the How to Study the Bible podcast, and I'd love to invite you to join us as we weekly discover a passage of God's Word together. From beginning to end, from principles to practicals, we are here to make sure that God's Word is powerful and relevant to your life. If that sounds like something you're looking for, I would love to invite you to subscribe. You can go to lifeaudio.com and search How to Study the Bible, and we'll see you there.